Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, since Easter, we have uh, been looking together at the minor prophets, one of them uh, each week. And this morning, we're going to look at a prophet who usually gets read from once a year uh, in churches around the world. And we are no exception to that. We read from the prophet Joel on every uh, Ash Wednesday um, together. But as I hope we'll see, Joel happens to be a really appropriate prophet to read on this day in the church calendar too, Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate God's continuing active restoring presence among his people. So I'm going to read from Joel 2. I'll read verses 1 and 2, and then 12 through 17, and then 23 through 29. You can follow along in the order of worship where these verses are printed, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Joel 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dwelt, dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. 
even on the male and female servants in those days. I will pour out my spirit. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now, as we always do, that you would meet us in the places where we are where we find ourselves this morning, that those words that we sang together, those ancient words that your people have been singing for a long time, that you would meet us by the dazzling of your spirit's might and give our jaded senses light. Father, meet those of us who are here this morning, hungry, thirsty, ready to hear from you. Meet those of us here this morning who feel distant from you, far from you, either because you just seem that way to us or we have been running. Meet those of us who are in faith and those of us who are outside of faith and those of us who aren't sure. Father, meet every single one of us and show us the grace of Jesus again. If you do it, we know that it will be by the work of your Spirit in and among us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, Christmas morning uh, 1985 was probably the best Christmas morning I ever experienced from a kid's perspective. Uh, Of course, being an adult uh, makes Christmas a little bit of a different story. It brings new kinds of pleasures and its own beautiful way of experiencing Christmas morning. Um, But experiencing Christmas as a kid, as many of you know, is immediate and it is visceral and it is instinctual. And uh, Christmas 1985 was probably peak Christmas for me um, from that perspective. And it was that way because after we had breakfast together, our family walked into the living room where the tree was to open our presents, and I looked, and there was my first uh, 10-speed bike waiting for me there. It was a red uh, Ross Compact, had the slightly curved frame, just a little bit shorter than a bike that was designed for adults. And all my my life, uh, all my life up until that point, I had ridden yard sale bikes with BMX frames, most of them, probably every single one of them, spray painted all black. This, This was the first new bike I had ever gotten, and it was love at first sight. Now, uh, where I grew up and when I grew up, kids rode bikes. At times it felt like that was pretty much all that we did. We just rode bikes around everywhere. So I rode that bike every day, starting uh, on Christmas Day. That bike felt like an extension of me. It felt like a part of me. I mean, for better and for worse, the bike that you rode formed a little portion of your identity. So that's why it was so devastating for me to wake up one morning about a year after I had gotten that bike and walk out to the place where I always stashed that bike and find that it was missing. My brother's bike, also a Ross from Christmas 1985, it was missing too, gone without a trace. They had been stolen and uh, I was disconsolate. So my dad told me that he would uh, take care of it. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but when my dad said he was going to do something, he was pretty much always good for it, so I didn't bug him about it. 
What I didn't know um, was that he had filed a claim with our homeowner's insurance uh, for that bike and for my brother's bike. It probably just took a couple of weeks for that check to come in, but it felt like me to, to me like it was forever, um, especially because I was bikeless and I didn't know exactly what it was that I was waiting for. So when the check came in, he told me what he had done, and we hopped in the car to go to the bike shop. And while we were on the way there, my dad told me how much we could spend on this replacement bike. And I have to be honest, it seemed like, like a king's ransom to me. And I walked out of that bike shop that day with a brand new powder blue Fuji 10-speed. As impossible as it seemed to me, not only had my lost bike been restored in full, I had somehow ended up with a better bike. A bike that I would have never even allowed myself to dream that I could have. But it was true. And of course, it wasn't until I was a lot older that I realized what had really happened. There's no way, of course, that the insurance company would have given my dad enough money for that bike or even close to replacing that bike. So, of course, he made up for the difference out of his own cash. He restored my bike and way more. And it is this kind of restoration that is at the heart of the book of Joel, a restoration in full, and even more than full. God makes this incredible promise to his people through the prophet. He says, I am going to restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. You will eat in plenty, and you will be satisfied. I'm going to restore to you the things that you have lost, the years that you have lost. And church, this is the God that we meet in the book of Joel. He's the God who restores to us things that we have lost, the years that we have lost. He's not talking about a bike, of course. He is talking about the very real losses that run even deeper into the lives of people like you and me. And that's why we need to hear Joel. So I think that Joel was probably among the last of the minor prophets. I think that for a bunch of different reasons, but um, the main one is that he doesn't mention any kings. It's unusual for the prophets not to mention the king that they are prophesying under, unless, of course, there wasn't a king around to talk about. And that's what I think the situation was. I think that Joel preached and wrote sometime after the first large group of God's people came back from exile in Babylon around 540 B.C. The people are back in the land, and the land now is just kind of a sub-province of the Persian Empire. The rebuilding had begun. Families were trying to make sense out of what was left, and a whole generation of people whole generation of people were trying to assess the damage that had been done, not only to their land, but to themselves. And this is important. These are a people who knew their history. Their people had been the victims of repeated invasions. 
Their people had been the victims of multiple, multiple horrendous slaughters. Their people had been the victim of the destruction of their beloved national treasures, the destruction of their own homes, ancestral homes and fields and livelihoods. They had been victims of forced displacement into a foreign land. Centuries and centuries of this stuff had fallen on their heads. And the people who were around and alive in Jerusalem around the time of Joel, they may not have experienced all of this trauma themselves, but their mothers and fathers did, and their grandfathers and their grandmothers did. And the effects of it had shaped them. The effect of it had damaged them. It had hurt them. In other words, these people had lost a lot, a lot more than they could even begin to comprehend. A lot of years, a lot of pain, a lot of trouble. Some of it was the result of choices that they made. Some of it was the result of choices that others had made. And these are Joel's people. And he is one of them. And so in Joel 1, in the first chapter of this book, Joel lays out this incredibly powerful metaphor for what it is that's happened to him and his people. In the first chapter of his book, Joel describes in incredibly vivid and evocative detail a plague of locusts ravaging the land. He describes the locusts as a nation, powerful and beyond number, with teeth like a lion's teeth, with, with fangs like a lioness laying waste to everything in their path. He says the vines, the figs, the grain, the trees, it's all destroyed. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. And because of all of this, Joel says, gladness has dried up in the children of men. The gladness has dried up. Locust plagues, of course, were well known and they were feared in the ancient world. If a swarm of locusts passed through your land, it wasn't too much of an overstatement to say that everything fell apart. There was nothing to eat, there was no oil to cook with, there was no wine to drink, so once you worked your way through whatever you had in storage, you went into a famine. And when you went into a famine, whoever was weak fell prey easily to disease and to death. And on top of that, there was nothing to sell or buy with one another. There was nothing to trade with other nations. It was a complete socioeconomic disaster. And so it's no wonder that Joel says that that takes away the gladness of a people. A locust plague tore at the order and the well-being of a people. And Joel says, this is what's happened to us. This is who we are now. And so Joel 2, which is the part of the book that we read from, expands that metaphor of the locust plague into an analogy for the plight of God's people as they begin to move forward after they have suffered so much loss. And it begins in verses 1 and 2 with Joel sounding an alarm 
for the people to prepare. But instead of a plague of locusts coming, what Joel says is coming is the day of the Lord, which he describes like the onset of a horde of locusts coming to lay waste like an army. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now we have talked about the day of the Lord before. It's come up several times as we have worked our way through the minor prophets. It was a theme they like to return to, and it refers to this deeply held and deeply cherished belief that one day there was a day that was coming when God was going to return and set the world right. That a day was coming when he was going to vindicate his people and he was going to put away evil forever and he was going to establish true justice and true peace to the ends of the earth. And God's people, they longed for that day. They, they pined for that day. And here's what the minor prophets like to do. They like to turn that longing inside out. Yeah, God's going to come and he's going to put away evil. But then the prophets would say, he's going to start with you. With the evil that's in you. With the evil that you have perpetrated on one another. That you have perpetrated on your neighbors. It's Joel's way of reminding the people that they couldn't pin all of their losses on other people. They couldn't pin all of their losses on other nations. Yeah, Assyria... Babylon, Edom, they had done horrific stuff. But God's people had done horrific stuff too. We've read about some of it in the Minor Prophets. They had been ruthless and unjust with their own. They had been violent and scheming against the poor and the helpless. They had been faithless and wandering. And so the prophets always say it's not going to do for God to just put away some of the evil. He's got to put away all of the evil. And that's why Joel asks in verse 11, which we didn't read, the day of the Lord is great and it is very awesome. Who can endure it? Who, who indeed? It's a good question for people like us to think about. And while that question is echoing in the minds and in the hearts of God's people, while that question is echoing in our own mind and in our own hearts, following that harrowing question comes the incredibly good news of verses 12 and 13. God speaks into the pain and insecurity of that question and says, yet even now, return to me with all your heart. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. The invitation is always there, people. <laughs> the arms are always open. The Father is always out looking for the prodigal to come home on the horizon. The shepherd is always out roaming the dark hills for that one lost sheep. Joel reminds his people, and he reminds us who God really is, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting over disaster. So listen to me. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you have done. You need to hear this and believe it. You cannot outrun the grace of God. You can't. This 
The stain is never too dark to be washed away. The sin is never too big to be lifted off your shoulders and cast into the depths of the sea. Church, it is just absolutely true. You cannot outrun the grace of God. There is no place you can go to be away from it. So God says, just come back. Or come for the first time. And this invitation is so beautiful and it's so bracing because it moves past the outward formal rites. It moves towards us and treats us as whole persons. That's what rend your hearts and not your garments means. It means that when it comes to repentance, when it comes to returning to the God who's waiting for us, it means that God is not interested in how sad we can make ourselves look. He's not interested in how much we can punish ourselves. He's not interested in all of the promises that we might make to do better next time. He doesn't care that we've done lots of good things and we'll do lots of more good things. He doesn't care how much we read the Bible or how much we prayed. He doesn't care if we say, look, I I haven't missed a Sunday in a long time. I'm not that bad. Rend your hearts means that when it comes to repentance, the thing that God wants, the only thing that he wants is us. That's all he wants, us, you and me, daughters and sons with open hands. I mean, if we come holding on to all that junk and waving it all around, waving it all around like rent garments, no matter how good all that stuff looks, it's not repentance. It's just manipulation. And God isn't interested in that. He wants us. Come with open hands and they will be filled with everything. And that's what the back half of Joel 2 is all about. It's about what happens when people return to the God who is waiting for them. It's about what God fills our hands with. In verse 23, Joel says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. And he describes not only a forgiveness, but a restoration. The gladness of the children of men had been dried up, and now it is being restored. He he continues to use the language of restoration in the image of a locust plague. He says, God's going to send you wine. He's going to send you grain. He's going to send you oil. The fig tree, the vine, they're all going to have their full yield. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The wine vats will be overflowing. Everyone will eat plenty and be satisfied. And then it becomes really clear that this is not really only about some locust plague. The metaphor begins to break down because God says to them, not once but twice, my people, they will never ever again be put to shame. They will never be put to shame. I'll be in the midst of you and you will know that I am Yahweh your God and that there is none else. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I will restore to you the things that have been lost. That's a promise, church. That is a promise. It's a promise that God makes to a people who have been through trauma and who have been through loss. God promises to restore them. 
God is a restorer of the broken. He is a restorer of the hurting. He is a restorer of the ashamed and the lost and the hiding ones. God is a restorer. It's a promise that you and I are called to believe. Joel, of course, doesn't really have any idea how that would happen. He knows that it's true because he's heard it and so he speaks it, but he doesn't know how. But you and I, we know how. First, we we know that we can stand in that great and awesome day of the Lord because Jesus has stepped in to stand for us in our place. He takes all of our ruthlessness and injustice. He takes all of our violence and our scheming. He takes all of our faithlessness, all of our wandering. He takes it off of our shoulders and out of our hearts, and he places them on his own shoulders at the cross, and he does it gladly, church, out of great love for people like you and me. He falls on that day so that we can stand and endure. That's the God who offers forgiveness when we turn, we return to him with rent hearts. But Jesus is also resurrected. He is also the ascended one. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And that's why he can also restore to us the things that we have lost. I don't know what it is that you have lost. But I know that people like us have scars and we have wounds. I have my own list. Maybe it's things that were lost because of choices that you made, an addiction that you gave yourself to, an infidelity that you indulged a seeking of your own good over the good of someone that you have been called to love. And so maybe, as a result, you lost months or years of time to that addiction. Maybe you lost your family because of that infidelity. Maybe you lost a friend in that self-seeking. If that's you, listen, listen to me. God is a restorer. He is a restorer. Or maybe you've lost things because they have been taken from you, not a choice you made. You have lost a loved one in death or maybe months of your life in fighting a disease. Maybe you have lost some sense of security, some sense of dignity because someone that you trusted abused you. Maybe you have lost a sense of confidence and self because throughout your childhood you were told over and over again that you are not enough. Maybe you have lost a sense of safety because you were the victim of violence. Church, we we all have wounds like these. And so I want us all to hear it again. God is a restorer. He restores the years that we have lost. He restores us. 
the whole of our Christian life, the whole of our Christian life, from the moment that we follow Jesus, he begins to work in us, to renew us, and to restore us into the people that he made us to be. It's slow sometimes. Sometimes from our perspective, it is almost imperceptible. Other times, it happens in a breakthrough, in a flash, in a rush. It happens, though. God raises our broken walls. He rebuilds our broken frames because he is a restorer. He does it sometimes through the word. Sometimes he does it through the sacraments. Sometimes he does it in prayer. Sometimes he does it through our relationships with one another. Sometimes he does it by bringing someone or some group of people into our life that we would have never expected or chosen. Sometimes he does it through things that we see or read or hear. Sometimes he just rolls in like the wind, unbidden unannounced, untamable, and he does whatever he wants directly in our lives. He is a restorer. And that wind that moves in unbidden and unannounced and untamable is what Joel's talking about, of course, in verses 29 and 30, even if he doesn't really have a sense for what that could look like. God promises his people, the people who were back there suffering under these years, these centuries of loss, he promises one day I'm going to be present with you in a way that you could never have anticipated. I will work among you. I will restore among you in ways that you could have never dreamed of because I will pour out my spirit on you. And that's what we celebrate today on Pentecost Sunday, the promise that Jesus made and that he kept that he would not leave us as orphans, but that he and the Father would send us a helper, a comforter. And that Holy Spirit in whom we believe, church, he is the presence of God himself with us, doing everything that he has promised to do, including gracefully restoring to us, graciously restoring to us, the things that we have lost. Let me pray for us. Father, you are in the midst of us and there is no one like you. Help us to make this returning to you with our whole selves central to who we are as people. Make the return to you be like second nature to us. Build it in us that we would return to you so that you could work your restoration in our lives, so that you could give us back the years that we have lost. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray in the Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.